you would open your Bibles to John chapter 6. As Matt mentioned, we'll be in those first 15 verses this morning. John chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. I want to read that text. And then we pray for, again, the preaching of the word and look at the text together. John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would be gracious to us this morning, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel would come this morning, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our focus this morning, our aim, is that we would look to Jesus, believe, and be satisfied. That we would look to Jesus, believe, and be satisfied. In order for us to do that in John chapter 6, we really need to set the scene for today's text. It's a familiar text, a story that we probably heard as children if we were raised in the church. But even if we weren't, it's a story that we have probably heard somewhere along the way. 
It says in verse 1, after these things. Though we're not sure the length of time that has passed between chapter 5 and chapter 6, we do know that following Jesus' healing of a man who had been ill for 38 years, the Jews began to persecute Jesus. It says in John chapter 5, verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And by persecution, what we mean is they were seeking to kill him. Not simply because he performed a miracle on the Sabbath, but because he was making himself equal to God. John chapter 5, verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then we, as we heard last week, received Jesus' discourse on his deity and the five witnesses that would testify to this reality. And at the conclusion of that discourse, Jesus exposes the error and hopelessness of the faith of the people of Israel that sought to persecute Jesus. According to last week's text, the Jews' error was keeping them from putting their faith in Jesus. It was really twofold. We'll look at those again just to set up the scene for today's text. I think the first error that they were making was the praise of men. They didn't seek the glory that is from the true God, but they were, putting, they were puffing each other up by receiving glory from one another. That's what the text said. John chapter 5, verse 40, 44 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. In other words, they didn't really seek the heart and face of God because the praise of other men satisfied them. Just like themselves, they created in their own mind what they thought was good and right. They had a sense of pride and superiority and safety in their position. They were being told that they were right and good by men who were guilty of the same sins that they were guilty of. The first error that the Jews made was that they had created their own self-righteous little echo chamber that blinded them from putting their faith in God. There's a small piece of application that we want to hit. This morning's sermon I, I hope to um, help us apply as we move through the text. My question is, is your life open to godly critique? Or are you only surrounding yourself with people who are guilty of the sins that you hold dear? Who can speak loving but hard truth into your life? But the second reason that the Jews were unable to put their faith in Jesus. It wasn't just that they had created their own little self-righteous echo chamber, but they had the wrong object as the goal to put their faith in. In Jesus' assessment of the Jews in verse 45 of chapter 5, their hope was improperly set on Moses and the law. Do not think, he says, verse 45, that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me, Jesus says. But if you do not believe, 
his writings, how will you believe his words? The Jews believed that they were a great people who were inherently better or more righteous than the world around them. They, they simply had that mindset because of their heritage. They still believed in their minds that God chose them because they were special. They were good and better rather than understanding that they were special because God had chosen them. Had the Jews truly understood the words of Moses, they would not have misunderstood the prophecies in the Old Testament of the Messiah to come. But because they saw Moses as a national hero that had delivered them from Egypt, rather than seeing in Moses this stammering, broken man who had been used by God to demonstrate the glory and power of God, despite Moses' shortcomings, to deliver them from the people of Egypt. Despite being at the bottom of the social ethnic food chain in the Roman Empire, the Jews still believed that they were somehow better. But the reality was they were missing it all. They misunderstood the account of Moses. They misunderstood the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And therefore, they were missing the only true object of saving faith that stood right before them, Jesus. So to import into today's text these faith errors that the Jews were making is what is required for us to understand what takes place in John chapter 6. So let's import those into John chapter 6 and continue to press forward in the text in John together. It says, after these things, John chapter 6 verse 1, Jesus went away to the other side of the sea, or Tiberias. Now, Tiberias is just another name for the other side of the sea that uh, the Romans had given it. They were in charge. They were in control. And so that's where that name comes from. And it says this. It says, a large crowd followed him because they saw signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, I want us to stop here. We're just getting going, and I'm already saying, let's stop for a second. To again see the scene that John is setting for us before Jesus performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Despite Jesus' controversial and confrontational teaching that has just exposed the errant faith and hope of the Jews, the crowds continue to follow him in hopes of catching another glimpse of one of his healing performances. Imagine that. He just made himself equal to God. They wanted to kill him, and yet the crowds continue to follow him. Why? Because in their minds, this is entertainment. We get to watch him perform another healing. But what I want to draw your attention to is what it says in verse 4. As Jesus and his disciples go up on the mountain, verse 4 says this, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. What seems like perhaps a simple statement regarding the time of year that it was, like this is John helping us kind of get our bearings on what part of the year that, that this took place in. It's less about the date and more about the mindset of the Jews. As D.A. Carson puts it, John's reason for including this verse is not so much chronological as it is theological. I want to go ahead and play my sermon cards here so that we can soak in the full weight of the text as we move forward. I believe that this is a very strong comparison that's 
about to be made between the Passover, the feast of the Jews, and Jesus himself. Now we know that Jesus is the true Passover, but the Passover that the people of Israel were celebrating was something quite other, different than Jesus himself. So I want us to see as we push through the text this comparison of the way that the Jews had now approached the Passover when they had the Passover himself among them. In this context, verse 4 is revealing a significant mistake that the Jews were making as they had grown accustomed to celebrating the Passover. I believe the Jews had forgotten to rightly celebrate the Passover in a way that highlights the salvation of God. For the Jews, it had become a celebration of a hero, a hero named Moses, no doubt who they had forgotten about his stammering tongue and his weaknesses, his cowering down, his fleeing for his life. And they had only zeroed in on his good attributes. They had exalted Moses, who was now in their minds this great historical figure. And they observed him as this great leader who led the nation into victory over their oppressing foe, Egypt. Again, D.A. Carson helps us here, saying, the Passover had become to the Jews what the 4th of July is to Americans. It was a rallying, a rallying point for intense nationalistic zeal. Gone were the days of the weight of a lamb being slain, sacrificed and covered, blood covered over the mantles to spare them from the wrath of God. Now this sacrificial lamb was a formality to the greater celebration of their great nation. It had become the feast of the Jews. It was no longer Jesus or about the Passover lamb. It was a celebration of being a Jew rather than the remembrance of God's salvation. And this subtle shift is a drifting away like Hebrews chapter 2-1 warns us of. As believers, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. This is a continually looking on to Christ that is required of us, a looking off, as Matt said earlier, the distraction of the world, the things that would have luster in our lives. This is a fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is, as Lauren prayed earlier, a seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus, seeing the crowds coming, being mindful that it's near the Passover feast, sought to teach them more about himself. The true Passover lamb. The real feast. The fact that Jesus taught the Jews in this moment is not recorded in John's gospel. So as we look at our text this morning, we're not going to see that Jesus taught, but we will see if we looked at one of the other accounts. This is the only miracle, by the way, that is recorded in all four Gospels. If we looked at other accounts, like the account, this, 
the account of feeding the 5,000 in Mark's gospel, we would find out that Jesus, with compassion in his heart, as the crowd came, taught them. This is what it says in verse 33 of Mark chapter 6. The people saw them going, talking about Jesus and the disciples across to the other sea, so they hurry their way around. And many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So I want you to see Jesus' heart here as the crowds come. It says as he looked upon them, they were like sheep without a shepherd. I think you can hear the tenderness in Jesus' heart. That he had compassion on them. That they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. They were blind. They were helpless. And Jesus saw them that way. And following this extended time of teaching that Mark tells us about, John records for us the behind-the-scenes of the crowd interaction between Jesus and the disciples that precedes the feeding of the 5,000. This is what it says in verse 5. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew that he, excuse me, what he was intending to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. What follows is, again, this miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. And in those four Gospels, the details that John provides are unique. It's one of the beauties of the four Gospels. They're cohesive, and yet we get different perspectives and looks on the same events. In all the other Gospels, Jesus is interacting with the disciples in general. But in John's text, I think we're given insight into something unique and important because he interacts with two disciples in particular, Philip and Andrew. And I think a lesson being taught to the disciples, particularly Philip in this moment, is one that we all need to heed and hear again. Again, Jesus, knowing full well what he intended to do to feed the 5,000 men, asked Philip, where are we going to get enough food? Or to be specifically, where could we buy the food to feed the 5,000? Now practically, Philip was most likely the one asked this question, where to get the food, because his hometown city was the closest to this location of all the disciples. If anybody would know the answer to that question, Philip would have the best answer. But I don't think it was a practical question. I don't think he was looking for the practical answer. I think, more importantly, Philip was being asked by Jesus, as the text says, in order to test him. Philip was being tested. Jesse Baker and I were having a conversation about this part of the text earlier in he said, there wasn't a Costco anywhere nearby, right? There's no Costco to run to. Additionally, if there was such a thing in Jesus' day, they simply didn't have enough money to, provoor, excuse me, to afford providing even a, 
according to the text, a little food for each person. There just wasn't enough. And Philip, who had so quickly forgotten how Jesus had provided wine for the masses from empty vats of water at a wedding, which he was present at, responded to Jesus' question without faith. He responds to Jesus without faith. His answer we find in verse 7 again, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive even a little. Yet, the true feast, Jesus, was right there with them. Jesus was worth infinitely more than 200 denarii. And Jesus was sufficient to satisfy far beyond a single meal of bread. Jesus is the limitless bread of life. He is not just a slain lamb who protects for a night, but is the shield and seal for eternal salvation. With all the money in the disciples' possession, they could only hope to provide less than a little food for those present. But Jesus' supreme worth extends to all mankind for all ages. Jesus is sufficient. Well, here's another piece of application for us. Has your life been marked much like the hungry 5,000? with hopelessness the reason the large crowd Jesus had already taught the people the reason the large crowd was coming to him was because they were hungry they wanted to know what the plan was they didn't have a plan for food here's the application come to Jesus come to him come to him in the hopelessness of life Let's continue to push through the text together. Look with me in verse 8. It says, one of his disciples, so the interaction between Philip and Jesus has already happened. Philip responds without faith. I want you to see what Andrew does. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Now I want you to see, I think, Andrew was a humble man. If you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, one of the things that it says about Andrew, it's one of my favorite quotes in uh, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, they were warning Andrew to, to discontinue preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And Andrew's response was, I would not have preached the glory and honor of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. He was a bold man. But that obviously followed the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. In this moment, we find Andrew, I think, um, in a humble position. He's no longer known as the first disciple that Jesus drew to himself, but he's referred to as Simon Peter's brother, right? He's, he's the second best brother of his family from this vantage point. Says there's a lad here. This is his response. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Let me stop there. Andrew didn't throw his hands up in the air. I think Andrew takes a very small but pointed step of faith. He found all, they, all he had. This is all we can find. We got five loaves of bread and two fish. 
But I want you to see what Andrew does with it. He brings it to Jesus' attention. This is all I got. This is all we got, Jesus. But here it is. This is all we got. But here it is. And Andrew knows the situation. Though I'm not certain here, I believe Andrew responds with some measure of faith. It is abundantly obvious that Andrew, like Philip, was aware that the circumstances that confronted them, that 200 denarii wasn't enough, there's no place to get food, and Andrew also knew that two pieces of fish and five loaves of bread was not enough to feed those people. He said so. But what are these for so many people? I think it's a legitimate question. I think it demonstrates that Andrew knew whose hands he was putting the five loaves and two fish into. So let me ask another piece of application here. Are you willing to put all that you have in the hands of the Lord? Gather it all up and put it in the hands of the Lord. Do you trust that though you don't know how things may transpire, that God is faithful to provide? Can you look to Jesus and trust him when the answers the math formula doesn't add up. Look with me in verse 10. Jesus responds to Andrew. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves and having, having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also the fish as much as they wanted. Now again, as we push through, we're just going to try to pull out some pieces of application. I want us to see three applications from these two verses. Number one, Jesus chose a place that had much grass in it. Now that may seem like a passing comment. It, it struck me the first time I read it in preparation for the, the sermon, and it was like, there's, there's got to be something there. And I went and read several commentaries trying to figure out, and nobody really even commented on it. But I want to say this. Jesus chose a place in the same way that he intended to feed 5,000. He chose a place on the side of the mountain. Spurgeon says Jesus was always choosing natural pulpits. Like wherever he was at, he found the pulpit. I think he put himself on an elevated place on the side of this mountain with his disciples where there was lots of green grass where the people could come because he knew they were coming, and he knew that he was going to feed them. He knew he was going to teach. He knew he was going to feed 5,000 people. Jesus knew all these things, and so he selected a place where there would be a comfortable place to sit. And I just want to say, so often I think we miss the everyday kindnesses of the Lord because we simply take for granted his goodness to us in this life. And he's always sitting us in the grass, and we just don't realize that he's done this for us. And so I just want to encourage you to rejoice in, look for, praise God for the everyday kindnesses that the Lord extends to us. The second thing that I want us to see from verses 10 and 11, a piece of application, God uses broken things to multiply his kingdom. Now, I'll be honest with you, I understand that this is not the point of the text, but Mark tells us that in his rendering of this event that Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks verse 41 of Mark chapter 6 it says and he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking toward heaven he blessed the food and broke the loaves 
and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. Well, this morning, I, I brought with me uh, a piece of bread. If the students are here, if any of the kids are in the room, and maybe you're, maybe you're taking great sermon notes, maybe you're uh, drawing something that you thought would be fun to draw, I want to get your attention for just a minute because I want to show you this piece of bread that I have in my hand. It may, some people may already recognize this bread, all right? The reason that some people may already recognize this piece of bread is because this is Brandy Suggs, very delicious, especially if you put some good butter on it, homemade bread that she brought to the Smith house this week for us to enjoy. And um, I just want you to know this is still a good piece of bread I'm going to put butter on for lunch today, all right? This piece of bread, this is what Jesus did. All right, now think about this. He had five loaves of bread. And of the five loaves of bread, think about this right now. I don't know how many people are in this room, but I'm going to say it's probably in the 80 to 100 range. All right? Jesus took five loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people. And this is what the scripture says he did. It says he broke it, and then he broke it, and then he broke it, and he kept breaking the bread and breaking the bread and breaking the bread. And guess what happened to the bread? It never ran out. He just kept breaking it and breaking it and breaking it. And there was always enough food for everybody that was present. The broken bread continued to be broken and serve the people. Now, I'm going to set the bread down here, like I said, and save it for later. But I want you to hear this, students. When Jesus was breaking that bread to serve those people, to feed those people, I think there was something more significant going on. I think Jesus was demonstrating how God multiplies his kingdom. That he takes broken things, and God takes broken things and uses them in his masterful hand to accomplish his will, to do the things that God intends to do. There's no salvation of the world unless the Lamb of God himself was broken. If Jesus isn't broken and crucified, there's no salvation. And though I don't think, again, that's the point of the text, I do see that in the same way that Jesus broke the bread and caused it to multiply to feed 5,000, God also breaks us for the purpose of making us useful for the spread of his kingdom. But I want you to see one more thing from those two verses. And I want everybody to hear this. Obedience matters. Obedience matters. Look with me in verse 10. It says, I'm going to emphasize words so that we, we catch it as I read. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. They obeyed Jesus in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also, the fish as much as they wanted. Now, that may be a, a simple connect of dots there. But Jesus said, sit down. They sat down, and it says, he fed those who were seated. Now, there may have been people standing that got to eat too. I don't know. The text doesn't explain it to us. But I do see. Jesus said sit, they sat, 
and he fed those who obeyed. Look with me in verse 12. It says, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that, excuse me, which were left over by those who had eaten. Now Jesus didn't just pacify the people's hunger. It says, when they were filled. Now I don't know what anybody's eating patterns are in here, but I'm a breakfast guy, right? I love to go eat a big breakfast. Bacon, eggs, biscuits, gravy, the whole works, right? I like to eat a good enough breakfast where lunch doesn't matter. I want to be filled at, at the breakfast hour. That's my, that's my pattern. And sometimes at lunch, I'll just eat something light just to tie me over, all right? This is not a tie-me-over meal that Jesus fed these people. He filled their bellies. They were filled. Additionally, not only did everyone have their fill, but it says leftovers were collected. The abundance of God's provision is immeasurable. Not only did everybody have their fill, but they collected 12 basket loads. That's more food than what they began with. And like Solomon's wealth and wisdom before the eyes of Queen Sheba, so is God's abundance before his people. If we'll just look to our great God and his supply, we'll see an abundance. A life given to Jesus is never a life in want. Charles Spurgeon says this, I shall never be in want while Jesus sits on his throne. If we'll look to Christ, he will continually give us our fill. He'll fill us. Here's another question. Are you finding Jesus in today's text to be the true feast? There's more. The reason Jesus had his disciples gather up the leftovers after the meal is so that nothing will be lost. It says it was important, not that everybody have their fill, and not that there's leftovers, but the leftovers be gathered so that they are not lost. Not one crumb should be lost. Again, I don't believe it's the point of the text, but there's just so much good application here. As we look at the care that Jesus takes not to lose a single piece of leftover food, I can't help but consider the fact that not one sheep of his will be lost though the 99 may be with him he'll find the one I want to encourage you if you're listening today perhaps you haven't put your faith in Christ you haven't trusted in him to save you from your sins you haven't put your faith in the reality that Jesus went to the cross without sin but died on the cross to pay for your sins that his bloodshed was the price necessary to wipe your sins clean to be made righteous before a holy God who will judge unrighteousness with eternal damnation well I want us to 
finish the text this morning as we walk verse by verse to its conclusion. It says this in verse 14, and we're going to tie this back to the beginning and hopefully put a bow on the text. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Well, this is what they came for. They thought they were going to run around to the other side of the sea to watch Jesus heal more sick people. They, were, they wanted to be entertained with more miracles. They weren't expecting him to take two pieces of fish and five, five loaves of bread and feed 5,000 people, but they experienced it. They got their miracle that they came for. And their response is this. Listen to it. It doesn't sound so bad. This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. It looks like they're getting it. He's the Messiah. But listen, they still had this wrong, nationalistic, jacked-up idea of who Jesus was. And so when they said, he's the prophet that's coming to the world, they're still thinking he's the prophet that they wanted him to be. And they couldn't embrace him for the king that he was. So it says this, verse 15. So Jesus, doing what Jesus does, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. That means they were coming to take him by force to make him king. Jesus knew that they were going to do that. Think about the irony of that. That people who had misunderstood him, who desired to kill him, who hated that he claimed to be equal to God. We're going to take him and make him king. Listen, we all know nobody makes Jesus king. He is king. He's the king of kings. Nobody makes him king. All other kings that have ever walked the face of the planet or prime ministers or presidents or whatever you want to call it. They've been made what they are. But they're not the king. Jesus is the only true king. And it says, as he saw them coming, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He's not even with the disciples at this point. Despite the compassionate teaching that Jesus just spent hours giving to these people and the gracious provision of the food to their field, the Jews erroneously came to see a man perform for them an entertaining sign near the time of their national celebration to stir up their fervor for a king that would provide for them what they wanted. Listen to me. Jesus is not going to give you what you want. He's going to give you what you need. He's going to give you what he wants to give you, which is greater and better than anything that you would try to make Jesus give to you. He'll give you salvation. He'll give you relationship with himself. He gives you the assurance and promise of eternity, fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What the people sought 
would not satisfy. It would only meet a temporary need like the meal that Jesus provided for them. But in their moment of earthly, self-righteous glory, Jesus slips away. Just as he will anybody who seeks their own glory or to use Jesus for whatever purposes they have in mind. Listen to me. If you try to use Jesus, the real Jesus will slip away. He'll be gone. But the true Jesus, the king of the universe, humbled himself to walk among men, to preach the good news of himself, to live a life without sin, and to be offered as the true Passover lamb, a once-for-all sacrifice, providing, listen to this, an ever-satisfying joy and a sufficient salvation that leads to eternal life to all those who upon him and the feast of the true bread of life put their trust. That's what this text is about. It's about seeing Jesus and knowing that he's sufficient. Knowing that he's enough. Knowing that he is the true feast. Not some national celebration. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted from the people in his day. And it's exactly what he calls us to today.